Welcome to On The Square, a special podcast brought to you by Sapelo Square in collaboration with The Maidan. I am Dr. Saad Abdul-Khabir, Senior Editor of Sapelo Square and Curator Producer of this podcast where every month we get on the square and into some real talk about race and Islam in the Americas. On this episode of On the Square, I'm talking to sexual health educator and expert Angelica Lindsay Ali, better known as the village auntie, about race, sex, and the Ummah. Assalamu alaikum. How are you? Wa alaikum salam. Alhamdulillah, I'm good. Good. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, I, you know, I follow you on social media and I've seen, you know, the different things you've done and I've been really excited about it. And so I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today, too, um, here on On the Square. Um, real talk on us, real talk on race and Islam in the Americas. So my first question is, how did you become the village auntie? Like, how did I get that name or how did I get to this place? (laughs) Let's start with the name, because I also want to know, is it A-U-N-T-I-E or (laughs) A-U-N-T-Y? And what the difference is? Let's do that part first, because (laughs) I get people all the time who tell me that I'm spelling it wrong or people who are like, I can't find you on social media or I sent you an email and I'm like, well, you spelled it incorrectly. Both are informal versions of aunt, right? Or mm-hmm. aunt, depending on where you live in the United States. And mm-hmm. I did a bit of research because so many people were arguing me down about it. And what I found is that generally there's a geographical difference in terms of what term people choose. So a okay. lot of people from who speak English and are from a Southeast Asian background, they use Y. Oh. Uh, there are some people from some parts of the UK who use Y and a mm-hmm. lot of people who would be considered Generation Z or whatever comes after that, younger people use Y. When I went, being the Virgo that I am, and checked, <laughs> the, the, the most proper form of the improper form of aunt is IE. And that's how I always grew up spelling it. I've mm-hmm. always only seen seen it with IE, you know, in the African-American community in the United States. And apparently even when I go to check the Cambridge dictionary, it redirects you. If you type in auntie, it will redirect me to IE. So I'm, you know, I'm comfortable with it. Right. I haven't, I haven't uh, uh, consulted a linguist yet, but that might be the next <laughs> phase. But yes, that's right. why I use IE and not Y. Right. Because I actually was thinking about that because I often pause before spelling auntie or auntie because I'm like, I don't want my black, I don't want my black car revoked. And I'm, saying, I'm like, so how do black people spell this term? So I'm Generally, happy to know IE is the way yes. to go. Yes. And, you know, and I went and looked up Auntie Fee. I looked up Hey Auntie. I looked up all the, you know, colloquial uses of Auntie. And I'm like, okay, so we, we firmly on the black card train. So we good in that regard. So, yeah. So how did you, so how did you get here? Like, how did you, how did you end up um, sort of becoming the village auntie? So the name really came about through a conversation with a friend. And she's like, you know, I feel like you're like, our village auntie, like you're the person that we can go to when we have questions about things that we can't talk to our mom about or things that we you mm. know, didn't learn in school, don't learn in the masjid or in the church or what have you. So that's really where the name came about. And it's really a role more so than a name. It's like a title for mm. a woman in the community. You find you find her in, in lots of traditional, especially West African communities, but really all over the continent of Africa, in the Caribbean, uh, in my community in Detroit, we had somebody who we would consider a village auntie, several actually. And I really got started mm-hmm. in this work as a way of healing myself. So when I was in my early 20s, I was dancing professionally. I was doing African dance. I was with a company. And I was experiencing really bad cramping outside of my menstrual cycle. And we had caravan down to Cincinnati from Detroit for a dance conference. And I was doing taking a sabar class and I was holding my side because I was cramping so bad. And the teacher said, 
you look like your uterus is probably tipped. So you need to tie a lapa around your waist and drink kinkly ba tea, which is a kind of tea that you find in Senegal. And I'm like, you know, you're a good dancer, but you're not a doctor. I didn't say that. Because she's, and she's much older than me. So, I, you know, I was not going to dare let that come out of my mouth. But I sort of, you know, took her advice just, you know, in a respectful way. But I didn't really heed it. And then a, a few weeks later, I was at my annual gynecological appointment and the doctor said I had an inverted uterus. I needed to wear some kind of waist brace. And I, you know, if I didn't want to use any pharmaceuticals, I could use some type of herbal remedies to help to tone the uterus. So I called her. I went home and I called him like, how did you know all of this stuff? And she basically said, she, you know, she said a lot of things. But one of the things that stuck out is she said, I'm a woman who knows myself and a woman who knows herself can teach other women to know themselves. So I sort of took that as um, a sign that I needed to get to know more about my body from a holistic standpoint. And I, you know, I took her on as a teacher, you know, call her and ask her different advice. And I just started learning mostly for myself. Then when I left education and entered into the public health field, a lot of our work was centered around women and girls. And I saw the lack of sexual and reproductive health education that especially Black women had, mm. and especially Muslim mm -hmm. women, uh, women who will say they never knew what their body parts looked like. They didn't know what certain mm. parts of their reproductive system were for. And these were women who were married with children. So I started just really small with talking with friends. I would talk to their daughters when they started their period. Oh, my, my daughter's getting married or my daughter just had a baby. What can I do? So it really started in, in living rooms and, you know, on cell phone conversations. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of grew from there to where I started uh, the social media platforms in 2018, just to, just to reach a wider audience, just to see, you know, if there were people who needed this information and it kind of blew up from there, but it, it started back in 1998. That, that was when I, I first took the first steps towards starting this work. Wow. So that's 1998, 2018. That's 20 years, right? That's, that's that is the math, right? That's 20 years. Right. Wow. Wow. So 20 years of experience before you, before you sort of brought in the audience for your work, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so who is the village? So the village, for me, the village is any woman regardless of religion, who wants to seek out a deeper version of herself by connecting with her anatomy in different ways and by decolonizing her mind, especially as it relates to how her body is supposed to, quote unquote, supposed to function. So the village mm. is primarily very much centered in Blackness. And I was nervous about that at first because I didn't want anyone to say that I was excluding other people because I don't. Anyone can be a part of the village, but you're going to get blackness. Wh whatever I mm -hmm. teach, whatever I do, you're going <laughs> to get a dose of blackness because that is who I am. That's a foundation of my work is is really a pan-African worldview. Um, but the village is comprised of women, I'll say between the ages of 15 and maybe 80 years old. These are women who mm. don't know, want to know, or want to know more about themselves, who want to connect to women around the world, who want to engage in intimate conversations about very deep issues, some sexual, some spiritual, and they want to do it in a way that mm -hmm. utilizes technology to cross, to cross that, that digital divide and that geographical divide. The village also includes... Uh, uh, an increasingly more vocal cadre of brothers who are basically sitting on the margins. They want to get this information because they said, we don't, we don't, nobody teaches us about a woman's body. Nobody teaches us how to teach our daughters. And um, one of the, one of the, the, the most vocal supporters, and I hadn't realized this, Amir Suleiman, the poet. <laughs> okay. He sent me a DM. I've been a fan of his for years. He sent me a DM one day and he said, you know, sister, I just want to thank you for the work that you do. I, see, I send my daughters your videos. 
I send my daughters to your page. You just helped me so much. As a father of daughters, there's a, there's a, a, a disconnect in terms of like, what do they need to know? And I'm glad that I have you as a resource and just literally came out of nowhere. And I've heard him on, you know, on more than one occasion tell the brothers, like, you know, you need to, you need to be tapped into this information too. So the village is by, for, and about women, but the men are also there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, there. right. And and can you and do, can you tell us what happens in the village, or or does what happened in the village stay in the village? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so some of it stays in the village. There are certain things that I, I don't talk about on social media, either because they're too intimate to discuss, or they're too nuanced, mm -hmm. like the masturbation issue. I don't discuss that on social mm -hmm. media at all. But the village, we you know we dance, like literally, we dance, we sing. Every class I have, somebody cries. Uh, we pray a lot and we, we, there's no, there's no question that's off limits. Mm -hmm. So this is a space where anything you want to know about your body, I encourage a level of vulnerability. There's a, there's a sense of spontaneous community that we form in each class where women mm -hmm. know and understand the questions that you have. This is the space that you can ask them the issues that you have. This is the place where you can discuss them. So I think people kind of don't know what to expect when they take one of my classes, but it's always mm -hmm. like a mixture of workshop slash block party slash sleepover. I mean, there's, there's so many like elements to it. Uh, it's a lot of fun, but, but the, 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 the things that are more private happen in person. So. Right. So if someone wants to become a part of the village and join the village, the first step is to take a class then. Is that what no. you would say? Or no, you can, I mean, I, I think the first step is to like follow one of the platforms. So either Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, because there's a lively community, especially on Instagram. I go live, you know, a couple times per week. I have posts and I encourage people to engage with the posts. I have videos that I have there. You don't have to take a class, but I think once you take a class, like being on social media, you're in the village, but you haven't actually entered a home yet. Once you, once you take mm. a class, then you're sort of invited into a home you're invited to, you know, pull up a chair or, you know, sit around a big table of, of, of rice and, 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 and meat, and, you know, sit and partake. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's a different level of community building. But there are some people who consider themselves tried and true villagers who've never actually taken a class. I love that image you just created of like sitting around the tables. It reminded me just like that kind of that space, like as a woman and growing and being raised, you know, by women and growing up around it, you know, and there's that, that, that kitchen table, right. And it's kind of, you kind of sit around that table and these are, as a little kid, the things you would hear, right. You know, you just kind of sit in there, you know, but there's this, there's this really sort of vibrant sort of conversation and this exchange of knowledge and knowing, right. That's happening at this space. So I really, I love that image. I see that. And um, for me, even being sort of far from home in many ways now, like I love the idea of this kind of you creating this kind of virtual space where you can still have that, right? You can kind of, kind of still sit around this kind of kitchen table in a way, right? Mm -hmm. And learn from you, but also from the other women, right? Who are a part of the experience with you. Um, you mentioned, um, uh, when you talked about who's in the village, you mentioned this term, the word, the term decolonization. And I recently, I follow you on Twitter too, and I saw you had this tweet and you described your approach and you said, for the last 18 years in public health, I have worked to bring together the areas of spirituality, sexual, sexual health education, trauma-informed care, decolonization, and community healing. And I was like, whoa, there's a lot going on there, but I appreciate, I appreciate like there's a, you know, there's some, you being real specific about what you're trying to do and you're bringing a lot of things together. So I was wondering if you could kind of speak a little bit about what those terms mean and why is it important to link them? You know, like I was thinking, you know, what does sexual health education look like when you're using, you know, a trauma informed care approach or an investment in decolonization? So. Mm -hmm. I think the first time that I thought to link those few areas was back in 2010. So I was a part of the Institute for HIV Prevention Leadership, which was a joint partnership between the CDC, uh, the University of South Carolina's Arnold School of Public Health, and one other government funder that is slipping my mind at the time. And it was this really rigorous, intense program where we would fly to Atlanta four times per year, and we would engage in this really deep 
um, authentic and very intentional public health practice. One of the things we were charged with was how to find innovation in our work. We had to create these research projects and, you know, uh, present these, you know, long facilitations about what type of, of program we wanted to get funded. And one of my colleagues in the cohort said, you know, Angelica, you have such an interesting mix of experiences. It would be so dope if you could figure out a way to create a behavioral health intervention that could link Islam, African dance, HIV prevention, and put it all together. So that was the very first time that I started to see that there was a connective tissue between all of these things that were important to me that I could possibly put into practice. So I set about looking at the different areas of my life where I was already doing work and not getting paid for it. And that, because that, that let me know these were things that I was passionate about. And at the root, you know, I'm, I'm a staunch Pan-Africanist. I was you know, raised by people who were a part of the, you know, all African people's revolutionary party, the Republic of New Africa from Detroit where the nation of Islam was born. So that idea of decolonizing our minds and decentralizing the Western gaze was, has always been extremely important to me for my entire adult life. And I was looking at the ways in which that colonized thought, especially as it relates to Black women's bodies, affected the ways in which we moved about the world in these bodies and mm-hmm. the trauma that we face, the epigenetic trauma that we carry from our great grandmothers who were sexually assaulted and you know we never knew, but we still carry that trauma in our bodies. The fact that every workshop that I was doing, even as a part of my day job in public health, I would ask the women, you know, what was your first sexual experience like? And invariably, every single time, the majority of the women talked about an instance of sexual trauma as their first sexual experience. So I knew that a trauma-informed approach was important. And I'm also, for me, as a sexual assault survivor, that was important. And then I looked at what are the ways, how, you know, how can I decolonize my mind? How can I deal with the trauma? I do that through mm-hmm. spirituality, through my connection to mm-hmm. Allah and my understanding of how Islam is not just a religion. It's a deen. It's a complete way of life. And there's literally an answer there for every malady. And there is an embodied sense of practice in the way that we pray and how we fast and how we you know, come together, that human connection of standing shoulder to shoulder in prayer as a form of healing trauma. And then I said, okay, but how does this relate to sexual health? Well, it relates to sexual health because Allah created our bodies and he created them to work in masterful ways. And a woman's body is very complex. Some people call it complicated. I call it complex. It's a different difference in vocabulary changes everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I started to look at ways that I could infuse these things that were very important to me in my personal and professional life into the work of Village Auntie, because it would be easy for me to talk about, here are five sex positions that you can do if you're a curvy girl, or, you know, top Mm -hmm. 10 ways to reignite foreplay. But I really wanted to talk about something deeper, because I really think that sex is just the entry point for the village. It's really about a recognition Mm. of womanhood and a reconnection to our ancestral pathways. That That was also really important to me to make sure that we reclaim the ways of our foremothers. You know, how sex was not always viewed as this taboo subject in Black communities. It was not always viewed as a taboo subject in Muslim communities. So I wanted to find ways to just, you know, little by little, infuse the conversation with um, prompts that, that will cause people to think more deeply about how they approach sexuality and relationships. Okay. Thank you for that, because that really helps in in how these different things come together for you. And one of the things you've mentioned a couple of times now is like being a Pan-Africanist and and having this kind of background. And you were saying, you know, whatever you do, Blackness is a part of it. And so what does Blackness mean to you? What does that mean to you? Like, What does that mean for that to be a part of it? You know, I think for me, Blackness is acknowledging that root of it's hard it's hard to put a, it's hard to put a word to it it's that it's that spiritual mm-hmm. connection that connects me to other highly melanated people that i have come across across mm-hmm. the globe it's the fact that my my great grandfather was born in mexico but he wasn't from mexico he was a black man who carried an mm-hmm. arab name who came from spain how did he get how did he get there 
And how do mm. you have a son who wound up in Detroit, who married my grandmother? You know, mm. I, I, I call myself a Pan-Africanist and not a Black nationalist because I think Black nationalism is great, but I did not want to limit my scope just to the Black American experience. I understand mm. that that as a woman who... I see remnants of blackness in that are common to people in Detroit, mm-hmm. people from Mogadishu, people from mm-hmm. Banjul, people from, you know, Port of Spain, from all of these different places. So for me, blackness is that essence of ancestral connectedness and belonging that we they try to root out of us and sever us from, but it, it still exists. It exists in the genetic uh, muscle memory that we have. How do we know mm. how to move a certain way? Um, how can I, you know, go and enter into a dance circle in Dakar and look like I was raised, you know, right down the street, but I, I had never been there before. Blackness to me is uh, an acknowledgement of those things that other people see as being harmful, but that I know are powerful. And I think me standing firmly in my blackness, it gives other people permission to stand firmly in whatever they are. You know, I'm not Mm -hmm. so black that I exclude you. I'm black and I'm proud of who I am. I'm proud of my experience and the collective experience of black people. But I also want you to be proud of wherever you're from, too, and also do some examining. It's not I don't look at blackness as being something that, you know, everything black is just perfect and good. But embracing the wholeness of our experience as black people, I think, gives me uh, space to examine those parts that could that could use some work and can use some healing. Yeah. You know, your point about ancestral kind of knowledge and reclaiming that and severing, you know, like, you know, our the subtitle for our podcast is, you know, Real Talk on Race and Islam in the Americas, right? And this and this idea that, you know, when it comes to race and, and, and when it comes to the Black identity and Black people in the Americas from, you know, Canada down to Argentina, um, that break or that severing, right, the transatlantic slave trade has really had an impact. Of course, it also had an impact on Africa, but it had its deep and a deep or deep impact on um those who made it through the middle passage, right, and survived and thrived um, in the Western hemisphere. And I know that, and I wanna ask you about rites of passage because I know that you have an institute, right, and you have a rites of passage program um, that you do through that institute. And I want you to talk, tell us about that, but also like why are rites of passage important? And, you know, what is it that we, may have lost, but also what is it that we retained, right? Like, you know, sort of like, you know, you know, despite, right, the severing that you talked about. I love this question (laughs) because a lot of people don't ask me about it. And one of the things I want to make clear since we started with, like, what's the correct spelling? Uh, A lot of people (laughs) say rites of passage, like R-I-G-H-T, like this is my rite of passage. I'm like, that is more like driving, like right of way. <laughs> but it's a right, R-I-T-E, right, you know, right ritual. It's a it's a it's a ritualized mm-hmm. practice. Rites of passage are ritualized practices that usher people from one stage of life to the next. And we have rites of passages, right? We have I, I got my license. So you'll see people, well, I don't people don't do that much anymore, but they would post pictures of, you know, their 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 driver's license for the first time. One one way that Black American people have retained a rite of passage is through the prom send-off. That's a perfect example Mm. of a rite of passage, the way that we will spend hundreds, thousands of dollars. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to make a comment about, you know, the the, the economic (laughs) assumption, right? But the way that we will make it a community thing. You literally have the church mother, the, the, the neighbor down the street that, that waves at you every time you drive by, the aunties, the uncles, the cousins, everybody is coming out to send this baby off to prom. It's a big event. That is an example of a rites of passage. That would be a rites of passage type ceremony. And they're important because mm. I think one of the ways that we have become disconnected from our culture and one of the ways that we have not allowed ourselves to ascend to different roles in our life is that we don't have a finite end to certain phases. So, you know, mm. when does adulthood start? You know, black, black people, we say when you're 18, you got to move out. But that's not true for all black people. Right. You have lots mm-hmm. of West Africans, East Africans who are like, nope, you're going to stay here till you get married. You know, you have people right. who are who are from from other families who say, you know, we're going to be a part of the family. So 
rites of passage are important because they help us to mark those transitions in life that and, and also give us lessons to guide us for what the next phase is going to be. How many times do mm-hmm. we talk about childbirth and parenting in Black communities outside of you need to get that baby solid foods, right? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> You know, there's always that conversation. You know, you still feed that baby milk. You know, baby's three months old. You know, you need to get that, give that baby some cereal. But are there conversations earlier before parenting happens to prepare a young Mm. woman, a young man for childbirth? Are there conversations Mm -hmm. to prepare for a change of life? What is menopause going to look like? You know, what what Mm -hmm. different things do you have access to? So I'm really firm on rites of passage, because I believe I, I, the class we did last year, I had a woman who she's a fully grown adult out of her twenties. And she said, until we did this program, I didn't really feel like I was really a woman. She does not have children. She's not married. And she said, I felt like there were parts of womanhood that I didn't have access to because, you know, I just got older, but I, I didn't yet know if I had reached that womanhood phase. She's not black. You know, and I think that mm. says a lot about the importance of rites of passage. And they don't always have to be formalized programs, but I do think that there should be an acknowledgement when we move from one phase to the next, because now you have people who have access to everything. You have 14 year olds wearing eyelashes and, you know, acrylic nails, and they have $800 cell phones. And, you know, it's, they have access to things that previously would have said, we're just for adults. There's no separation between the generations. And so you have a lot of um, generational mistrust and you have a lot Mm. of generational divide. Rites of passage breaks that because what you do is you create age grade societies. You have the women who are in their twenties are together. The women in their thirties are together. The women in their forties are together. And there's an intergenerational transmission of culture and information so that one doesn't have to compete with another. Rites of passage helps you to see the beauty in whatever station you are in life. Hmm, Wow, that's deep. I'm thinking, you, you you got me thinking about when I was growing up, like what would be rites of passages that we had. And I feel like one of the things for me, that the first thing that came to mind for me were bridal showers. Mm -hmm. And I have this thing whenever um, somebody gets married, I'm like, I have to get them a really nice piece of lingerie. And I'm like, it's my culture to do that. Like, I don't care what you're doing or whatever, but no, but really, and I, I guess in many ways I grew up, I mean, I grew up, you know, I'm black. I grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up Muslim. Most of the bridal showers I went to were Muslim bridal showers, right? So it was black Muslim women. And it was very, I guess, what the term people use today, sex positive. So, mm-hmm. you know, sex was always good as long as it was in a marital relationship. So it was very sex positive. And so, but the bridal shower was this space. If I think about what you're saying, it was like it would mark this moment. And it, so as a one who's not married yet or, you know, whatever, you're like looking, you're seeing, okay, this is what this happens, right? Mm-hmm. You're looking forward to having your own, you know, this kind of thing, right? And in that way. And then there was also a formal one that um, uh, one of my mother's friends, Cecilia Abdul Karim, they did this um, Rice of Passions program for, it was like, the, they're friends of mine now, but they were probably maybe two, three years older than me. And it was like this program, they would meet every week at her house and they had like research projects to do and they had a ceremony. And I remember looking at them and being like, I cannot wait for my turn. And then they never had the program again. <laughs> oh, so, <laughs> so I think I'm going to have to go to yours. So, so <laughs> when is, so when is your next Rise of Passions program? Like when is it kicking off or how could, you know, if I wanted to join, like what, how does that work? Well, you can you can join, no problem. Just say you want to join and you can get in. We, we did have an application process. Uh, the applications are closed now, uh, but okay. we will be doing another one, but not for you. You can, you, you can oh, still, you, you're still, you can still but inshallah, we'll probably do another one uh, before Ramadan of next year. Uh, the classes okay. will start the third week in September. We got hundreds of women who applied in, you know, in order to, to not make it, you know, too much of a, not a burden, but too much of a task to have that many women. We have some women we're accepting and some women we're waitlisting for the program Mm. because we don't Mm. want to turn any woman away. And the application is really not a weeding out process. It's really to learn more about who the woman is. And the questions are kind of like Mm. very metaphysical, like, who are you? 
who are your teachers, <laughs> your guides? And, and depending on how a person answers it, it says a lot about where they are in their journey, but it's not something that we use to, to, to judge the women who are coming in. Uh, we're actually coming mm-hmm. up on the one year anniversary of our first class. So we're going to send the applications back to the women who already graduated so that they can see how far they've come from that wow. first application. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what's the name of the Institute? The Village Auntie Institute. The class is called Foundational Womanhood. Ah, okay. Foundational Womanhood, the Village yeah. Auntie Institute. Yeah, I think I, I was listening to uh, probably one of your IG lives and you were talking about forming the Institute um, as a way of kind of, you know, sort of taking, so you already had like before, before 2018, you already had sort of 20 years of experience sort of in community, right? Being the Village Auntie. And then you kind of, broadening your audience, you know, by through through the social media platforms, but then also building, you know, creating other village aunties, right? That's the idea, right? That other people can also um, sort of play that role in their communities, but there's a process, right? You don't just, just you don't just call yourself you know, a village auntie, but there's a process that you're going through and in the, in the institute is a part of, right? Kind of mm-hmm. like creating these pathways, right? For women who also want to play that role in their communities. Right. And I, I think a, another big reason is I wanted to reclaim the role of women as institution builders. We, it does not always have to be built by a man in order to be valid. And also, I wanted to have a space where we could rely on traditional healing modalities that did not require external validation from a European institution. So it doesn't have mm-hmm. to be, well, I went and got the, you know, XYZ Ivy League University certificate in, you know, African women's healing. That doesn't exist. You know, we, we, that's, that's, a, that's a part of the decolonization process. Because I have people say, well, who told you that you could start a school? I said, who told me that I couldn't? You know, who, who, told, me, who told me that I couldn't? The very first university was in the world was founded by a Muslim woman. So this idea that women right. cannot form certifying institutions and institutions to train other women is just false because this is the this is the first the first education is your mother's lap. So I wanted to be able mm. to provide a space where women could get education and they could find their own entry point. You know, everybody's not going I, I came in with 20 years of experience. Everybody's not going to jump in at the same level that that I am in. But some people may want to focus on sacred body care. Some people may want to focus on somatic therapy through African dance. Some people may want to focus on holistic anatomy. I wanted to provide pathways so that women could have that education. But you're right. You have to have the same base of knowledge so that you have first done the work before you go out and teach others. Right, exactly. And it's very, there's also a very, again, you know, sort of prophetic principle, right? You learn something, then you teach it to others, right? And so you have to learn it first before you can actually go and share that. You know, I, I want to talk a little bit about this intersection between race and Islam and, and, and around sort of the work that you do. And I'll just share a little bit, a story, a little story of my own in the way. So, you know, I, I, you know, like I said, you know, was raised as you know black and muslim in brooklyn and most of the people in my community were black and muslim in brooklyn right um including sort of afro latino um people and non-black latinx folks um and then i started to um because of who my mother was and the kind of thing i started to you know kind of engage in non-black muslim communities right particularly sort of arab american or south asian u.s american communities and, you know, I'm a young girl, I'm heterosexual, <laughs> like this is girl, so I see, you know, and I, and I grew up, you know, understanding that we're all Muslim, right? So if they, I could have an object of desire, right, that was not another black kid, it could be a young black boy, you know, an Arab kid. And I remember I used to go to MENA, Muslim Youth in North America camps, and I recall having a crush on this like Palestinian kid, right? And, you know, we work together because, you know, that's how you do things. It's all, you know, very Islamic and everything. <laughs> you do these kind of things. And I remember having a crush on him, but finding very quickly that that would not be reciprocated. And not because of, not, not, not so much because of whether he was attracted to me, but because I was Black and the possibilities of where that could lead, right, were nil. Like, they were non-existent. And then, like, later on in college, I had similar experiences 
where there would be a mutual attraction between myself and someone who wasn't black. Um, but again, cause I'm, cause they were Arab or something and I'm not, you know, this could happen. Or in, when I was still single and looking for, you know, spouses and you're on the different like online programs, you know, like online dating, whatever they call those things back then, because I think it's different now, <laughs> there would be this kind of people seeking you out because you were black, but not because they wanted to be in a, in a, in a, in a sanctified relationship with you, right? So this idea of being both kind of undesirable as a wife, but desirable right, as a sexual object is something that I personally experience. And so I wonder about your own work. Like, ha- have you seen this, right? Or what, are, what do you think are the conceptions of, like, Black women, right, in Muslim communities? And what do those conceptions, you know, how do they, what, how do they affect a Black Muslim woman's sense of self, you know? So uh, the idea that Black women are sexual objects meant for pleasure, um, even procreation from other Black people, Black men, has never gone away. I think one of the protective factors for me in this work is that people expect a Black woman, of course she's talking about sex, because I'm not seen as being proper to begin with because I'm a Black woman. I don't care how tight my kimar is. I don't care how much my abaya drags the ground. My Islam is always questioned because of my blackness. And I, you know, I'm a convert to Islam, but even if I was generations deep, you know, into Islam. So the perceptions of black women and the fear of the black sexual body is very much still present in black communities and Muslim communities where hypersexualized. And it affects a Black woman's sense of being because what winds up happening is to combat the hypersexualization, you have women who go to the opposite end of the spectrum. They don't want to engage at all. They don't like sex. They don't like their bodies. They won't look at their bodies. You also have women who say, well, if this is all I'm good for, then I'm just going to go out and do whatever I need to do with this body. So it creates a distorted perception. And that's part of the decolonization that needs to happen. And it's interesting because I've been doing this work for a very long time. Now, there are other women who've been doing this work, you know, for a while, some who are brand new. And I've noticed that when there's a non-Black Muslim woman who starts talking about sex, the reception that she gets is very different than the reception that I get. You'll have people who'll say, well, finally, a Muslim is talking about sex. And it's like, bruh, hmm. <laughs> sis, I've been, like I've been here, you know, for the longest time. Right. Um, I'll right. have people who will come in and who will, you know, drill me about what, what is my, you know, religious evidence behind things. Because there's still this, this understanding that all Black people, and especially Black women are good for, is sex and work. We're receptacles mm. or servants. That's it. So it has a big effect on how we function in families because you have a lot of women who are sexually disconnected from their bodies. They, they're not, they, they engage in a lot of physical dissociation and a lack of love and care for our bodies that we then project onto our young girls. You have, you know, young daughters that you're throwing a jilbab over her head because she sprouted breasts for the first time because you've internalized the fact that the black sexual body is bad. So it's it's mm-hmm. not surprising. It's unfortunate that you have that experience. And I think what's more unfortunate is that in 2021, the same thing is still happening. It is, it's still mm-hmm. happening. You know, brothers will, will want to test out a sister, you know, test out the goods uh, but then we'll marry someone else, you know, or they they will, you know, say, you you know, you're really pretty, but my parents would never let me. Those those colonial notions and the holdover from Jahiliya. You know, some of these people mm-hmm. are from families that the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, was running your great, 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 great grandfather out of town because of the way that they were acting. Like we forget that. Right. And it's not it's not right, comfortable right. and it's not considered like proper to talk about, but some, some people still have that same remnant of that, that gross mentality about the body. And that has never gone away. So it makes it, it makes it difficult, but I think it makes it that much more important to have spaces like this where women can talk together because we do process a lot of these kinds of conversations and what that means. 
I sometimes wonder about modesty and its impact on a woman's sense of self. And by, by that, I mean, like, if, oh, so, okay, so how do I want to say this? Like, so the, a sense, so a Eurocentric woman's body type, right? Um, and maybe not even just Eurocentric, even other parts of the world, particularly, I guess, non-Black parts of the world, maybe, you women are small and they're petite and things are really tight, right? And if you have an idea that a woman is supposed to be covered and she's supposed to be covered because her body is, you know, this thing that's going to incite, right, sexual desire, if you're small and everything is small, it's a lot easier, right, mm -hmm. to sort of, quote unquote, be modest, right? Mm -hmm. If you're not small in any of the many ways you could not be small, it becomes much harder. And I sometimes wonder if how that might how that affects our sense of our bodies, of our bodies, you know, like so this kind of collision between these sort of narrow notions of what a woman should, what of what a woman is, mm -hmm. plus this kind of sense that the woman is a sexual object, so she needs to be covered. Like, how does that then impact? right? How you feel about your own body, mm. right? If you don't fit in those things, but you're trying to be because you believe as a Muslim woman that you're supposed to be modest with dress and other things, obviously too, but you're trying to fulfill that. But then, yeah, I don't know. I wonder sometimes about that relationship, you know, how that might affect people, you know? It's, it's interesting because there are some bodies, no matter how much fabric you cover them with, you're not going to cover the body because the body is the body. I had an argument with a brother and I said, an abaya can actually be a very revealing garment. Let a good wind blow. Let a good strong <laughs> wind blow. It can reveal everything. And I think what happens is we don't examine the intention behind the person looking. We just prosecute the body. We prosecute the person before they've even said anything. You know, you can have a sister who's, who's completely covered. Right. Um, but Look at her. Look at how she's walking. Look at how she's moving. Black women's bodies have been policed for for millennia, right? You can just just walking into the masjid. Why do you have to walk like that? Why do you have to do that? This is the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made me. And it does affect the way that a person looks at their own bodies because a woman can feel like I have to not be feminine in the way that I know how to be feminine. And I have to not be sexy at all, including at home, because I could be costing somebody their akhirah. I had a sister tell me that once before. Well, I don't, I don't want to cost anybody their akhirah by walking. So I just stay at home. I don't like to go out. Wow. So imagine. Seriously? Yes. She lived in Saudi Arabia. Imagine you're confining yourself. This is an African-American woman. You're confining yourself to your home because someone can't lower their gaze. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made you in that body. This is a sister who's wearing overhead jilbab with the shoulder abaya underneath it, socks, sneakers, like every day. But she was like, I don't want to go out because I don't want to entice someone. We've just absorbed all the blame and the shame for someone's inability to control their urges. You think I'm beautiful. You think I'm sexy. You think I'm desirable. I'm not enticing you. I'm not even thinking about you. So it absolutely has an effect on how we look at our bodies. And the fear that some women have when their daughters enter puberty is palpable. And they pass that fear on to their daughters. You know, okay, well, you, well, she can't come over to the house because, you know, you have sons. Okay, sis, your daughter's 10. Like she's 10, she's 10 years old. You know, and it, it, it's just ridiculous. And I'm not saying that women should, you know, shouldn't, you know, dress modestly. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that you're right. It's much easier to fit a certain body style and have it be compact, you know, and fit it under under a shrouded garment than, than a body that's full of curves and valleys and, you know, um, beautiful lines. It, it's, 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 not, it's not the same. And I, I, that's one of the problems that I have with the American Muslim community is that the woman is always indicted. I go to Senegal, I go to Ghana. You don't have these issues because a woman will tell you, stop looking. <laughs> a woman will tell you, you get, you get one look, stop looking because you know, you're in a place where women's bodies are known to be just more shapely and that's accepted. I think one of the, one of the mm -hmm. problems that we have here is that we want to shield everybody from everything. We don't know how to interact with, with 
bodies and real bodies. And don't get me started on, you know, how Instagram has also thwarted this idea of modesty and what bodies look like. That's a whole other conversation. These unrealistic hip to waist ratios and, you know, unrealistic body types and using garments to reveal it. That's, that's a whole nother layer of that. that, That's a late, that's a, a, that's body dysmorphia. We don't want to call it that, but that's what it is. That's what it mm-hmm. is, but that's you know that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, I appreciate what you're saying too. I think, and I think that that in the, the United States in particular, but I, I don't know about. I mean, I think there are different kind of cultural nuances across like the hemisphere when it comes to some of this stuff. But I do think this. I, I like what you're saying about this kind of modesty and and bodies, and also the kind of there's a lack of shared responsibility. So like you know the, with the, and. I would call it in the patriarchy, right? Like this is what happens, right? The woman becomes like, she's, she's the reason, you know, right now, right. We're on, you know, that right now there's the news um, is about what's going on in Afghanistan. Right. And there's all this kind of um, discourse that's about women, right. And women's freedom and all that kind of stuff. Right. And the, how, how women become the, the center point of like, how where the nation is going right or how you save people or whatever right and that and that's and that and that's kind of on a national or international geopolitical context but even more locally right a woman's honor all those things right there was like the women become the repositories for all that is good and bad right any community right and, and which as opposed to this idea of of a kind of you know a shared responsibility around right sharing spaces and being modest and like being able to sort of like, you know, function in a society with people of different genders, right. Without, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of everything falling apart. Right. So I want to also ask you about sort of like, it's funny when, when I thought of interviewing you, if we, if I had the money, I guess, for the samples, I wanted to play like that call me bad song. No, no, not the call me bad song. Um, the, the salt pepper song, let's talk about (laughs) sex. Right. (laughs) in my head the whole time preparing for this interview right but you know that's all we don't got no money for that but in any event y'all listeners who know that song just you hear that song so let's talk about sex right or really more specifically sexuality right i think you know sexuality is something that i think especially in a lot of muslim life is very private personal and also very individual right but it's also shaped by communal or external expectations and pressures and can have very public consequences, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think my question is, what do you think are the biggest challenges and opportunities when it comes to race and sex and the ummah? I think that the biggest challenge is that Muslims still think that talking about sex is haram. Like you can only talk about it with your spouse, uh, which I so which begs the question, then how are you supposed to learn what to do? Right. Right. Um, We have we have completely removed sexuality from our deen. But Islam is a very sex positive religion. It's very prescriptive in terms of the ways in which we can engage and should engage. So I think that the the the, that's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity because it, it invites people to look at a more expansive version of our deen. Islam is not just, you know, how tight is your kimar? Did you get your five in today? Have you saved for hajj? It's also, you know, are you fulfilling the rights of your spouse? You know, are you finding deeper ways to engage in this particular act of worship, which sex is an act of worship when it's in the confines of a halal marriage? From a racial perspective, I think one of the challenges is we have to untangle the trauma of hypersexualization for both black men and black women. Cause we talked about black women, but we also, you know, can talk about the way that the black male body has been fetishized and how it's looked at as being, you know, hypermasculine and hypersexual in another way that can that can, you know, cause people to feel as if black Muslim men are violent or black Muslim men are very brutish. Um, the opportunity is that we can begin to present ideas of Black and Muslim, Black and or Muslim sexuality as being very positive, very wholesome, and very nuanced. It's not just, it's not just one way. You know, we don't approach sex mm-hmm. in one way and, and causing us to look at the halal and haram in a new light. I had someone ask a question about BDSM and is BDSM halal? And I'm like, well, what would make it haram? 
you know, it's, 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 it's asking people to look at your religion and using your own understanding as a practicing Muslim to apply it to this area of life that has been so taboo. And I think that's one of the, the biggest opportunities is it's interesting that through talking about sex, you lead people back to Allah. Through talking about sex, mm. you lead people back to their deen because it's not what did I say, it's what did Allah say. You know, it's not what do I think, but what did Allah, you know, what did Allah prescribe for this? So I think that that's, 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 that's my hope with the sexuality conversation mm-hmm. and with, you know, different people engaging in it. And that's why I'm glad that we have social media, you know, technology uses, you know, provides us a way mm-hmm. to have that conversation more broadly. I think that's it. I like what you're, you said. You said kind of talking about sex leads you back to Allah. But I think it also it sounds like it leads you back to law without shame, though, right? Because people can talk about sex and like you, you, you know, it's like, like it's it's not an opportunity; it's a challenge, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you know, so it's like, oh, and I can't do this, and you can't do, it. and you go back to law because you feel like I did something wrong, even though you haven't done anything, right? <laughs> so like you haven't even gotten nowhere yet, you already yeah. feel like all the shame. <laughs> so this idea leads back to law, but without shame, I think it's a really powerful kind of contribution that you're making, right? Um, I think to um to the people you know, people's lives, and just even the discourse and the conversation, you know, I know for me, I, I know I'm attracted to your work, you know, as someone who is identifies as, you know, sort of heterosexual and someone who would be considered cisgender, you know, and, you know, this very like, you know, everything was really relevant in a lot of different ways. Also as a black woman too, right? You're a black woman, it's great. And also generationally, like, (laughs) it's like, we're there, but I wonder, you know, um, are there folks who wouldn't be heterosexual, wouldn't be cisgender that you found still find value in what you do? Yes. I, you know, a lot of people don't realize that there are a lot of folks who are LGBTQ, um, intersex, questioning, who engage with my work. And some, some of them reach out to me. Some of them reach out to say, you know, we have nothing in common. I have one friend uh, we know each other from the public health sphere. They're non-binary. They are atheists. <laughs> They're white. And they. I, and I'm just like, why? I don't get it. Like, why do you engage with the work? And they just said, you know, this is the work that you do and the way that you approach it is very practical. And while I, we may not share the same sexual demographics, right, or sexual characteristics, I find value in it as a human being who's engaging in sexuality, so I don't have to mm-hmm. I don't have to change my message or shift my message. I'm very clear that I'm a black heterosexual woman in a very, you know, heteronormative cisgender relationship. I don't, you know, mince words about that. And I never attempt to speak for a community that I'm not a part of. I don't ever attempt to speak outside of my area of expertise. So when I have people who come to me and say, well, I don't know how to come out to my parents or I don't know, you know, about this, you know, Act, act of sexuality, I'll tell them this is not something that I have expertise in. You know, this is not something that I can can help you with. If it's a question of a spiritual nature, then we can talk differently. But I think people resonate with my work because I want it to feel like you're sitting across the table from your auntie, you know, and I can give you advice. I'm only going to tell you what I know. And that that is helpful to a lot of people. It's not a it's not a marginalizing space. It's not a traumatizing space. It's a space that is welcoming. Um, but I'm also very clear about who I am and what approach I'm speaking from. Hmm. Oh, that's that's great. Yeah, and I can see that really that I can see that being really important to you just because it is sex and sexuality are so individual and so personal that you, you, know, you need to have a space where it's kind of, you're welcome. Right. Um, but you're also not misled, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to, I can't, I can't tell you why I don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what's next for the village auntie, you know, what, like, I guess, yeah. What, what, what's coming down the pike or what is, you know, I guess either what's coming down the pike or, what is the vision? You know, what's the long-term vision of the <laughs> So the long-term, you know, I have a daughter who's 13. I have two daughters. One is 13, one is eight. And my, my vision is that 
my daughters will inherit this work and have it look very different. They won't have to break down the walls that I'm, I'm, I'm kicking down or taking down brick by brick. I don't want them to have to dismantle shame and do a lot of the decolonization work because, you know, inshallah, if the earth survives and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us more years, I want, you know, when my daughter is 45, I don't want her to have to still keep doing the same type of work. Um, long term, I want to see the, the Village Auntie Institute grow into a global certifying institution where we can have centers around the globe where women are providing classes and providing mentorship and education to women in their communities and men, you know, by extension. Um, in the short term, my goal is to continue to branch out and scale the work. Uh, Labor Day weekend, I'm doing my first ever men's and women's workshop weekend. I've never done a workshop with with men by myself, right? I've, I've did some co-facilitation, but this will be my first time branching out and doing men and women together. And I eventually want to branch out and do a couple of men's only workshops, not necessarily around sexuality, but around emotional intimacy and how to access different forms of intimacy that are not physical. Because I think men, um, when they're given a fertile ground to emote, they do it very, very well. And I want to encourage that from a woman perspective. I also want to delve more into conversations about age, uh, sex across the lifespan and ageism as it relates to sexuality. I am getting close to entering into the menopausal years. <laughs> and I feel like though that's the age that women just become invisible. And there's so much opportunity mm. there for education and growth. So I'm working on um, some course offerings and some other, you know, um, workshops and, and talks uh, specifically focused on menopausal women and elderly women who are still engaging in healthy, happy sex lives and who want to still engage in healthy, mm-hmm. happy sex lives. That's, that's, that's the, the next, the next phase of work that I'm doing, inshallah. Mm. That sounds great. It also sounds like another taboo you're about to, you're about to, um, to embark upon. But like, it's so interesting because we like Khadija Radiolohu Anha, she's right there. Like she's like, she's right, right there. Like you have, you you know, you have Ibrahim and Sada, right? She was a beautiful woman and she was old. Like she was an old woman. And she got like, I right. was like, yo, she is, she fine. Like bring her to my chambers. She was old. Like, and we, so, right. so then, but, but then, you know, in the Muslim community, when a woman is 50, it's like, she's, you know, sour grapes, right. like old. So I, yeah, I definitely right. want to break that taboo in the community, not just because I'm entering into that phase of life, but, <laughs> but because I see, you know, older women are invisibilized and it's really an age mm-hmm. of so much increased body positivity and sexual potential. I really want to ramp up that, that understanding that, listen, don't, you know, don't don't discount, you know, women 40 mm-hmm. and up like we coming for you. We, we're not we're not what you think we are, <laughs> you know. Right. Right. <laughs> That's great. And so people so people and people who want to know about the, the session on Labor Day session and then things that are coming up for you in the future should follow you on sort of you said Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Instagram is probably the one that's updated the most. Um, okay. And after that is Facebook. I also post on Twitter. There are a few people who like want to get um, fatwas out against me from time to time on Twitter. For some reason, like some bros just like get so up in arms. But yes, they can follow me on Instagram at Village Auntie. That's I-E or <laughs> at TVA um, Institute as well. All right. And so my last question for you is a question we ask all our guests, mm-hmm. right? And so this question is, what is your black Muslim theme song? Ooh, so so I have one. It's just my theme song, period. And because I'm black and Muslim, it's gonna be my black Muslim theme song. It's not very cool to most people because a lot of people probably have never heard of this song, but it's super cool to me. Uh, it's the Space Traveler's Lullaby by Kamasi Washington. It is completely instrumental so there are no words okay um and and so i used to play violin i played in an orchestra and it plays like an orchestral arrangement it is it just unfolds in these different vignettes 
of like melancholy and joy and excitement and hope is very, I don't know, when I when I listen to it, I'm just transported. I, I literally play that song every single day. So. Wow. You said space it's called Travelers. The Space Travelers? The Space Travelers Lullaby. Oh, I love it. I feel like it also feels very, I mean, it feels very appropriate. It feels very Pan-African kind of Afrofuturistic as well there, but also to do the kind of work that you do, you have to dream, right? You have to kind of think outside of what is already happening, right? So I can see that. Well, thank you. I think I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go. I admit I have not heard, I've heard of Kumasi Washington, but I haven't heard that song. So I'm going to look that up. (laughs) (laughs) Let me know what you think. But thank you so much for joining us today on The Square. It was such a pleasure to talk to you and um, to hear your thoughts. And we encourage everybody to obviously follow the village auntie. Um, Yeah, so thank you. Thank you.